You are listening to The Hublic Sphere, a podcast created by early career researchers at the Trinity Longroom Hub. Our ethos is to interject the discussions we have in academia into the public sphere, asking what arts and humanities research can contribute to broader public knowledge. For season two, we discuss one general theme, connection. Welcome to episode five of the second season of The Hublic Sphere. My name is Tom Headley, and I'm a PhD student in Trinity College Dublin, researching modern mathematics and its links to artistic modernism. And indeed, 2022 is a centenary year for European modernism, but maybe for different reasons than you might think. In 1922, while James Joyce released his novel Ulysses, the trailblazing modern mathematician, Emmy Noether, was finally given a paid lectureship at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Since her PhD in 1907, Noether had built up such a reputation that she was called upon by the leaders of her field to help them clear up some lingering problems in Einstein's theories of relativity in 1918. And this led to her own discovery of perhaps the most significant result in modern physics, now called Noether's theorem. Despite all this, paid academic work had been denied to Noether until 1922 due to her gender and in part her Jewish heritage. Once an established lecturer, Noether went on to revolutionise the field of algebra in the 1920s as the figurehead of something of an informal school of followers, often called the Noether Boys. This remarkably productive group contributed greatly to the modernization of mathematics as a discipline. Much like simultaneous shifts in art and culture, mathematics also experienced a modernism of its own, and Noether's fingerprints are undeniably all over it. Now rightly recognised as one of the greatest mathematicians who ever lived, Noether never saw the rewards of her genius in her lifetime. While conditions for women in STEM and academia more broadly have certainly improved in the last century, Noether's life gestures to a lingering imbalance in the contemporary world. Even now in Europe, only around 10 to 15% of permanent academic positions in mathematics are held by women. Statistics across the rest of STEM are similarly discouraging with women occupying just 3% of CEO positions in STEM industry. In this episode of The Public Sphere, we probe, 100 years on, this gender imbalance in mathematics. I speak with Professor June Barrow-Green, a historian of mathematics at the Open University in the UK, who has worked extensively on the role of female mathematicians, with Isol Dourourke, who is a mathematics and French teacher at Loreto Valbriggan, an all-girls secondary school in County Dublin, who has published research on gendered attitudes in the mathematics classroom. And with Maria Martinez Isolares, a PhD researcher and teaching assistant in mathematics at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, who was involved with the European Girls Mathematical Olympiad, the EGMO, in 2020. Together, we examine this enduring gender gap in mathematics. We ask what obstacles stand in the way, of a more equitable and just academic environment, what we can do to get there, and whether establishing more meaningful connections across the sciences and the arts can help us along the way. Thank you all for being here. I'm so glad you could all take the time out to sit with me today. Maybe to get the ball rolling, I wondered if you could all just tell us how you got into a career in mathematics. What drew you to mathematics as a subject? June, would you like to start? Why did I choose a mathematics career? Well, it was sort of accidental, really, because I came from a family which had a very Victorian attitude, shall I say, to higher education for girls. And so they wouldn't let me go to university. And I ended up working in an art gallery in Bond Street in London. And I still thought I wanted to go to university. But by the time I got to 24, I thought, that's too old. 
sort of mature students weren't much of a thing then. And so I started doing open university courses. I thought I wanted to do history of art. But at that time, if you did the open university, you had to do um, a second sort of foundation course. And I thought, well, you know what? I kind of like maths at school. And I think I'll go, I think I'll do some maths again. So I did this maths course and I thought, wow, I really like maths. And I was very lucky because I went along to King's College London and said, you know what, I'd quite like to do this as a full-time student. And the admissions tutor at that point thought this was a good idea. I was really lucky that I think the timing all worked out. And when I was there, I, d- I loved it, but I just got really interested in the history. And I decided at that point, when I'd finished my degree, I just wanted to do history of maths. But then I also wondered whether I just liked being at university. It was so lovely being a student. (laughs) And I needed to shore up my finances at this stage. So I worked in the city for a couple of years and then went back to King's, did an MSc in mathematical physics and another bit of uh, sort of, well, serendipity really. I applied to the Open University as a full-time student to do a PhD because it was the only place in the country at the time you could do a, a PhD in history of maths in a maths department. And I knew I needed to be in a maths department because I wanted to do late 19th century maths. And I knew I was going to need help from mathematicians. And I wanted to be in a maths department. I thought I could kind of blag it with the history bit with my time spent in the art gallery and everything. So anyway, so that's how it started. And, you know, history and and maths were the two things I was best at at school, but I never, ever thought to put them together before. You know, I I feel incredibly lucky, privileged, everything to have ended up having had a career in a, a subject I love and being in an area where I feel I can help convey the humanity of maths to uh, a broader public, which I think is so important because I think it's so often taught devoid of the kind of human element of it. And that's part of which makes it so attractive to me, as well as the mathematics itself. That's so beautifully put, and I totally agree regarding the humanity of mathematics here. Uh, That's also a background I wasn't expecting. Uh, Your time in the art gallery really, it sets up a lot of things that I want to come on to later. Isol, would you like to go next? Thanks so much. Um, I have to say, uh, I really loved what you said there, June, about the humanity of maths. I think that's so much about what I love about my job now as well, teaching it at second level. But for me, from the beginning, I I just always love maths so much, like my earliest childhood memories of school are all to do with maths. My family didn't really have much interest in maths themselves. My dad a little bit, the rest of them, you know, they weren't particularly drawn to it, but they found it fascinating and quite curious that I was. They, I was this kind of strange little uh, creature in the corner coming home saying, we learned really cool maths today. And my parents were like, okay, but yeah, if that's what you want. And so from there, I feel like they nurtured that quite a lot. And all through my teens, I'd be given history of maths books and things um, for birthdays. And, you know, Christmases and whatnot. And then in terms of going forward, it really was no question. I always knew I wanted to study maths. And the question was, what with it? And then as I went through university and was deciding what to do next, eventually I kept thinking of all the things I wanted to do and teach maths just stayed there at the top of the list for the whole time. So I've never looked back. The thing that makes it so challenging, the fact that so many people find it kind of difficult to access and difficult to see, as you said, June, the humanity of maths. I think overcoming that challenge is the best part of my job now, and I love it. Yeah, I really think we can feel that enthusiasm coming down the recording devices. And yeah, your mention of this sense of perceived inaccessibility of mathematics is something we'll definitely come on to. 
Lastly, Maria, what about you? To me, I, I'd always liked at school, like the sort of problems that we would get, the sort of logical reasoning that you have to use, and especially like sort of geometrical reasoning or like visual problems. The thing that clicked for me was when I was 10 or 11, someone borrowed me the book, The, the Number Devil, which is a book about Robert who hates mathematics. And then for 12 nights, he has nightmares about this devil that insists on teaching him about mathematics. And it's very, very accessible, really pretty pictures, very colorful. But there are some very deep concepts that are explained there about infinity or combinatorics. And I was blown away by that book. I was like, oh, this is really, really cool. And then I sort of asked my dad, if I want to do this, what should I do? And it was like, that's this is mathematics. I was like, okay, then, uh, then I want to do mathematics. That was pretty clear from the beginning then, from that moment on. So I just went to university to do mathematics and then uh, the master's, as you said. But during this process, and also before that, I had always been very interested in reading about popular science and especially the history of science. And I didn't really realize it because actually history was the, co- the subject that I hated the most uh, in high school. But I think it's, I couldn't be bothered about like all the military facts and the battles and guys fighting. I don't know, that didn't interest me. But like the story of ideas and who came up with this and who came up with that, that was very attractive to me. And at some point during my university time, we did have a compulsory course in the history of mathematics in my bachelor's. And then in my master's, I also followed a seminar and a course in history. And I was, I couldn't help but nod like a lot while you guys were talking about the human side of mathematics, because I remember the first time I went to talk to Victor, who's currently my supervisor, I was like, yeah, because I'm really, you know, people see mathematics as this really absolute truth that has been handed down from the heavens, you know? But then you go look back and it's been people like us who have thought a lot and worked really hard and come up with ideas. And I figured that's what I was interested in. And that's how I've ended in the, in the history side of mathematics. Well, I'm really enjoying some of the parallels across the answers here, especially how art and literature have played a role here, um, from working in a gallery for you, June, and to the popular mathematics books for yourselves, Isol de Morea. Really, really fascinating, and again, something I want to probe in a bit. For my second question, though, I want to dwell on something we often hear in these discussions. I think an overused and misguided question is, how do we convince more girls to go into STEM? when, in reality, girls have always been interested in science and maths. Maybe a more useful question is, what do you think are the barriers to a more equitable discipline in terms of gender, and how do we overcome them? Let's start with you, Maria. Yeah, I think what bothers me about the question, how do we convince more girls, it sort of puts the pressure on the girls to be more interested. Whereas I think maybe we should put the focus more on how to make it more welcome to the people who already have an interest to feel like this interest doesn't need to be questioned. Because I have the feeling that it's more that you may have people who are interested in these topics, but then don't really see a way to get into uh, such a career or don't really feel at home uh, in, in certain bachelors maybe. And I know, I do have a feeling that things are quickly changing 
the last couple of years um, for I, I did work uh, well it was volunteer work for the ECMO the European Girls Mathematical Olympiad uh, and we did a series of interviews and um, when I interviewed female mathematicians from maybe pre a couple of generations prior from their experiences I could tell that things are changing a lot um, but another thing that that I noticed is that we have to be very proactive about this change. It's really, really not going to happen on its own. So it's not how do we convince more girls, but how do we keep making sure that as soon as they decide they want to join, they can just do so. Yeah, I very much agree with you here. That question about convincing girls to get interested in STEM not only misses the fact that many already are interested, but it puts the onus on the girls rather than on the environment itself, as you say. Isil, to me, this relates very strongly to your recent research on attitudes to mathematics in the classroom. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, I was thinking about that the whole while. I think I agree with what you were saying there, Maria. And I, when I heard that question, my first thought was that like, there's two things to think about here. There is the way that we talk about mathematics and the way we culturally view mathematics and the way students and female students in particular think of themselves as mathematicians so and that ties into a lot of as you said Tom the research that I was doing which was in the Irish context looking at the attitudes of girls in early secondary school towards maths and you know like we found that while girls and boys were performing and achieving just as well as each other at that stage like there really was a negligible difference if any that girls didn't think they were as good even though they were as good. And they were more likely to question themselves. They had lower what we call self-concept in mathematics education. So literally their idea of themselves as mathematicians, they were a little bit more tentative. They could do problem solving, but if they were told you are solving a problem, then they lost confidence more easily than their male counterparts. And I think a lot of that is really tied into as I mentioned before, how we think about mathematics. And actually, Maria, you mentioned it when you were talking about what you like about mathematics, like that traditionally there is this idea of what we call the absolutist paradigm of maths, which is that it is this true, um, it's hard, it's rational. Those ideas are ideas that we associate with masculinity traditionally. Historically, we have been told, oh, men are rational and women are irrational. Women are emotional. Women are these things. And even though obviously putting people into those binary categories is ridiculous. Being told that for years on end has an effect on us. So talking about mathematics differently, talking about the social context, expressing it in a way to say, not, not just in a utilitarian way, not just what is this for, but what does it relate to? What else does it mean? How can we connect it with other things? It's really important, I think, for all students, but female students in particular. Absolutely. I suppose what you're finding then is that to counter these enduring gendered narratives, which have already had an effect in the classroom, that we really need to be looking at intervening early. June, I want to bring you in here. What's your take on this? One of the things for me is I think it's so important to expose girls at the youngest possible age to mathematics as being, as you say, a welcoming environment for everybody. And I think we do have a problem in the UK where we don't have, for example, enough math specialists in primary schools. So there's the opportunity for, well, girls and boys to, to be sort of taught by people who aren't kind of confident and, you know, in, in mathematics. And actually our primary school teachers are predominantly women. 
we kind of come into this role model element, I think, very early on. So I think, you know, this is an area where it would be brilliant if we could do more, because I think the trouble is that by the time students get to secondary school, those ideas can already be set. And we've also got to deal with the fact that a lot of those children have parents who had negative experiences of mathematics. There's quite a lot to kind of get through. Plus, as you've both said, you know, there's this historical legacy, which is really deep. I want it to feel that when girls go to, particularly when they, by the time they get to secondary school, there isn't that kind of binary divide between the boys do maths and the, and the girls do sewing as, you know, as it was way back in, not quite my childhood, but I mean, I've been quite distressed, well, distressed maybe, but, you know, seeing in schools the attitude when I've gone in to talk to uh, mixed classes of girls and boys about maths, how, you know, some of the girls, it's almost like they don't want to be seen to be interested in it. We still have that attitude. So somehow that's something we have to get over. And I think I really like this idea of making it, you know, like a welcoming environment. Maths isn't just arithmetic and getting it right or wrong. If you say maths to people who don't do maths, they kind of just think of arithmetic. I, I mean, I bet you all have had the same experience with me many, many times when you've been to a restaurant and the bill has to be divided up. Who is the person who is expected to be able to do it? And when I told them, well, actually, you know, I don't use numbers all the time in my life. I do other things. Things are getting better. I'm, I'm not sure that they're getting better as quickly as we would like them. It will get better and better as we go on. And I think particularly at the moment, you know, sadly, you know, we are in this terrible pandemic. But I do think one of the things, positive things is a recognition by a lot of people how important maths is. Actually, there have been a lot of very good women role models who've been involved in, in the pandemic explaining statistics and, and things. So I think there is hope there. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm not all downcast. Yes, please. I'm all for hope in this regard. Um, a slight disadvantage of the podcast format here is that our listeners can't see the vigorous head nodding at what you've just said there, June, about being the numbers person at the restaurant table. Um, it seems we can all relate a bit to being the designated human calculator at times. I can see you especially nodding here, Isolde. Yes, that is uh, an incredibly relatable moment. And I think uh, Tom and I will also both relate to the fact because we both studied um, languages and mathematics at university. And so uh, when you were with the language people and something about numbers came up, what I find interesting and always depressing is the way people jump and say, oh God, I can't do maths. Oh yeah, um, no, no, maths isn't for me, maths isn't for me, maths isn't for me. It's interesting in that I feel uh, people do that with certain subjects in a way that they never do with, say, for example, English. Nobody says, oh, God, I can't read. I can't read. I really just, I, 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 I just can't do it. I don't open a book. Uh, people instead, people might say, oh, I'm not interested in that. Oh, that's not my thing. But with mathematics people, there's so much more of a cultural lack of confidence um, that people have. They feel so inclined to in, in, immediately say, oh, well, that's not for me. So please don't ask me anything about it because I'll panic and I won't be able to speak. And, you know, if I feel like if we could get as many people as possible to relax a little bit and to just open up to the idea that there might be something interesting and that even if it didn't come easily and immediately to them, uh, you know, there's still space for them um, in the study of mathematics at any level. 
Yeah, well, yes. I mean, I think that leads on into this attitude. We still have people in the media who will say with pride that they're bad at maths, almost like it's a badge of honour that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an artistic, creative person. Um, and part of being that person means I'm bad at maths. You know, and I would fiercely argue, and I'm sure you would too, that maths is a creative, imaginative subject. So it's kind of worse than people just saying, well, I'm bad at maths. You know, there are certain things you, you as you say about reading, you wouldn't kind of feel pride at, at not being able to read. But, you know, there is still that attitude that you can be proud of, you know, being bad at maths. And, you know, someone mentions the wor- a word like algebra and you can go into a blue funk and that's fine. So it's a good point. There's two things I wanted to point out. Um, the first being, I think this has to do with the lack of knowledge about what mathematics is. Okay, so people know mathematics in school was computations. So actual mathematics is very hard computation. So the, all, everything that has to do with uh, visual reasoning or pure logical reasoning or all the parts of mathematics that are not, I don't know, taking derivatives, these are absolutely out of the public eye. So there's this very narrow idea of what mathematics is, which doesn't help. And my second point was going to be that I think this, this which you mentioned, is about people being sort of, and, and June as well, being proud of not being good at math. I have the impression that this is sort of tied to the myth of the genius. And I feel there's this notion that only brilliant people can do math, only geniuses can do math. And I haven't seen this in other university disciplines, but there's this idea that either you are brilliant or you just don't belong there. I would hope that we would talk more about your regular plain Jane mathematician. I don't know if plain Jane is a loaded expression in English, but I don't mean it in a bad way, but like just a normal person who happens to be a mathematician who doesn't have a Fields Medal, who doesn't have prizes and who isn't absolutely mind-blowing. They just do math. They put a lot of time and a lot of effort into it and they enjoy it. So I would I would really like to add to that because um, it's actually, as well as, you know, what actually is mathematics, as we say, it's not just computation, but actually who is a mathematician? And I would like to see, following on from what you've just said, is how often do we see in television serials or whatever just an ordinary person being a mathematician as, you know, part of their job. You're right. You know, the mathematician is always portrayed as this brilliant person. Whereas, in fact, we know that mathematicians are in many, many different areas of life. And so it would be just really nice if instead of always portraying in popular culture, the mathematician is this lone genius, generally male, and it's just somebody else within the cast. To me... I mean, I find maths, you know, something that I love and I enjoy. I find languages difficult. I've, I've just never had a skill at languages. And I find, you know, seeing people who are fluent in several languages completely remarkable to me. But I don't see those people who are fluent in lots of different languages as being the kind of lone genius in the way that you know, other people tend to see mathematicians, I think. We need to kind of get away from the stereotype. So I think this leads us nicely to our final question. This series has the overarching theme of connections, and connections between mathematics and forms of creativity have already emerged in our discussion so far. For the question, I think it might be fitting and nicely circular to give Emmy Noether the floor in a sense. 
It's been noted by her biographers that Noether was firmly of the view that mathematics is fundamentally an art form and not a science. At risk of being provocative, do you agree, first of all? Maybe to widen the scope a little, though, do you think forging better connections across the disciplinary divide, mathematics and the arts, could help us get past some of these barriers described above? June, I know you've been doing some work in this area. I absolutely agree. And actually, I'm very fortunate. I've just, I'm involved in uh, quite a big project on looking at connections between maths, physics and the creative arts, particularly fine art, sculpture, music, architecture, various things. So it's a project between Cambridge in the UK and Boston in, in the US. You know, and when we look at these things and we see, you know, we can see all these connections. I mean, I've got a kind of wealth of examples from history and whatever, but it's actually getting them out there. So making, you know, what spaces should we be occupying where we can inform people about these connections, which are very rich, very deep and very, you know, and ongoing. And I mean, I think, you know, we can find in history various examples like, like Emmy Noether, um, Sonia Kovaleskaya, who was a Russian mathematician at the end of the 19th century. She said words to the effect of to be a mathematician was to be a, a poet in soul. You know, she exactly felt the same thing. And you can see various other mathematicians who, who think that way. And of course, if we go much further back in history to people like Dürer, the, art, you know, the artists of the Renaissance and so forth, Dürer was a mathematician as much as being an artist. He wrote books on, on mathematics. And perhaps one of his most famous images, Melancholia, is, is just full of, of mathematical symbolism and things. But the kind of the bad side of this particular coin is, I think, in seeing in some literature, particularly in late 19th century literature, where we see the image, particularly of the female mathematician, in a very negative light. And those images still pertain today because people still read Virginia Woolf, who has a, a, a female mathematician as one of her characters who she portrays being herself as a very negative thing. She doesn't want to kind of admit to being a mathematician. And George Bernard Shaw and Mrs. Warren's profession, I mean, again, the daughter of the, of the main protagonist is a graduate from Cambridge, which in itself is kind of anomaly because women couldn't be graduates from Cambridge at the beginning of the 20th century. But she's still, you could sit the mass tripos, which this daughter did. But she's actually portrayed as somebody who is kind of very anti-romantic, uh, sort of asexual person. So this kind of image of maths being this masculine subject, you know, does come through kind of negatively through the arts as well. Uh, but then, as I say, there's this really incredibly positive element of it where you see um, artists, I mean, again, beginning of the 20th century, you see artists, French artists like Duchamp, incredibly interested in maths, particularly in the fourth dimension and reading mathematicians like Rima and Poincaré and, and so forth. You know, there, there's so many really interesting connections. And I think, you know, we need to be able to get out there and inform as many people as we can so that they, they see that mathematics is just all around them and particularly has these very close connections with the arts. Yeah, it's a really fascinating layer for the discussion, I think. Not only do we have a, a wealth of connections between mathematics and creative arts, but there are, as you point out, portrayals of female mathematicians in particular that reflect back on our discussion of gender and mathematics again. I wonder, though, are there any more positive portrayals of female mathematicians that you can point to? One of the things I've been interested in looking at was those representations of women visually. What 
to me suddenly struck me as really interesting was that in the 18th century, there are images of uh, women mathematicians, particularly in France, and a very particular example is someone called Emily du Châtelet, who provided really the definitive French translation of Newton's Principia, and she provided a very extensive commentary which showed how much she understood it. And it was uh, still at that time, this is in the middle of the 18th century. I mean, it, well, it still is a fiercely difficult book. And so she absolutely had credentials as a mathematician. But what's very interesting is that there's this beautiful portrait of her. And she clearly had sort of agency in how this portrait was sort of set up. And so she has an astrolabe in the background, scientific instrument, working out positions of stars and things. And in the foreground, a book is open. It's a geometry text and she's holding her compasses. She is telling you, I am a mathematician. I mean, there is just no, absolutely no argument about it. She's sort of accepted as a mathematician, even though she can't be a, what we would call a professional mathematician. She can't have a position in an academy, which were really the only places where if you were being a professional mathematician, you would get employment in an academic sense. But she could occupy the same spaces in social discourse and so on. But I, to me, it was very interesting that she felt she, she could have her portrait painted in that way. And you fast forward to the 19th century in Britain, and in a way, her counterpart is uh, Mary Somerville, who was a scientist, mathematician, and who provided an English interpretation of Laplace's Mécanique Celeste, which is the sort of successor to Newton's Principia, if you if you like, and there, you know, she has her portrait painted, not a hint of scientist or mathematician about her at all. I have no doubt that if Mary Somerville had wanted to be shown, you know, holding a globe or or something, that would have been completely acceptable. But she chose not to. To me, it was just interesting and and looking at how women mathematicians have been portrayed throughout history in you know the portraits of them but then and you you go back earlier you don't see women mathematicians at work per se because actually there weren't really women mathematicians at work in that sense but what you do see is women portrayed as muses to mathematicians so when you have these images of the seven liberal arts and you have geometry astronomy um, arithmetic and so on and the person who is sort of portrayed as a muse is a, it's a female form so the, the the woman is being portrayed as the sort of conduit in a way for for the mathematics but not as the mathematician and i think you know there, there's i feel that there's a really interesting story here about kind of how people consider women as mathematicians by just looking at the way they have been portrayed and also how they want themselves to be portrayed, how they describe themselves. So I want to bring Isolde and Maria back in here. Isolde, um, Isolde, as you mentioned, we both studied maths alongside a language, uh, French for you, German for me, leading to us often running between two sides of Trinity's campus for classes. Uh, what's your take here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, we're certainly all in agreement on this one, I would imagine. Um, I think that um, it's absolutely so important to try and bridge that divide um, as much as we can, because it's a false divide. It doesn't actually exist. It's a divide 
that's just created in culture and um, oh well I'm a science person and um, I am an arts person and um, that's that I mean I always love showing the connection for my students between mathematics and French my two subjects what we're doing for both of them is we're searching for patterns that's what's happening all the while you're looking for patterns you're looking for connections um, and that process you know it's like it's not dissimilar some some of my students will find French easier than maths or maths easier than French as the case may be but it's trying to show them that what we're doing is not that different and as you say that it can be so creative and um, you know I love that you mentioned Sofia Kovalevskaya there's a quote from her you may know and I actually only know it from a fictionalized retelling of her life but I really hope she said it because I love it that she said that uh, of mathematics that this science requires great fantasy and that it really is a subject that requires so much creativity and if people can only dissociated from arithmetic from calculations from all these things people think of as so dry then you know I think our lives would be much easier we could just stop stop where we are right now and retire I think at that point but um no I think it's one of the most important things that we can do going forward and Maria what about you there's a there's a, a previous issue here that we want to change the way mathematics is perceived and we would like people to understand that it's a creative endeavor but this completely collides with how we present mathematics in schools, I believe. I don't know. I, I, I was so bored in mathematics class in school. I really liked it, but I found it very boring because we would go over and over and over the same sort of problem with different numbers. I think it would be very interesting to explore a different way of teaching mathematics, but this is really, I can imagine that this is really hard to tackle because it also requires retraining the people who are teaching the mathematics. Also connecting to what June said, if you have teachers who themselves view mathematics as this very rigid, like computational uh, thing, that's what you're going to teach to your students. We basically need to rethink the whole, you know, <laughs> the whole thing. June, I can see you're itching to get in here. Yeah, I just wanted to add a really a, a nice example that I was involved in, um, and I'm still involved because it's still going on. There's an exhibition called Sublime Symmetry, which is about the uh, ceramics of someone called William de Morgan, who was the son of Augustus de Morgan, and you may know of de Morgan through de Morgan's laws. And the curator of the de Morgan collection of all these amazing ceramics of tiles and vases and all sorts of things got very interested in the sort of symmetry and, and wa wanted to try and unpack the mathematics behind some of these designs. And one of the things that she did was getting schools and getting young children in to see these beautiful tiles and pottery and everything and exploring, you know, the ideas of symmetry. You know, I would have just loved that as a child if only there was space in the curriculum for, for schools to do this kind of thing with, you know, young children to see living mathematics in a, just a completely different and unexpected space, the impression that that could have on them. That could be a life-changing experience. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I just wanted to agree wholeheartedly with what everyone is saying. But it's so difficult because, as you both said, there's so many different aspects that can kind of hold back change in this regard. I mean, there's the actual restraints of curricula themselves and the need to constantly be short on time and get things done, quote unquote, is always there. But I just wanted to say that the modes of teaching that you're talking about, we call them the social constructivist mode to um, mathematics pedagogy 
strategy and it has been shown like studies have shown that girls in particular respond very well to it and that teaching mathematics in a collaborative way so like I always try particularly with my younger students you know even if we are just working on whatever a regular problem that they work together that they ask each other that they help each other that maths is a collaborative connected idea and that it's so important to try and get students to think about mathematics differently to try and get them to approach a problem they might not know how to solve is something that some students find so difficult but you know if they can do that then they can see the connections and from there we lead into as we say connections between mathematics and arts and everything else and you know there's as I say there's a there's a lot of barriers in the way but it really is one of the most important things we can do as well as showing you know representation of female mathematicians to have them be able to emulate it to some extent at the level that they're at creating things trying things imagining things but it's going to take change on a lot of levels i think in order for us to get there aha with our seeing the connections as you say i think we've kind of hit the nail in the head with regards to the theme of this series which is connections um so there we have it i'm afraid that's all we've got time for i know we'd all love to sit around and talk about this for several hours really um maybe we will no one else gets to listen thank you so much for taking the time uh, to sit down with me today. It's really been a pleasure and I hope it's given our listeners some food for thought. The Hublic Sphere is a podcast produced by early career researchers at the Trinity Longroom Hub. For more information on this podcast episode, follow our Twitter account at Hublic Sphere where you will be directed to our show notes and website. The second season of The Hublic Sphere is produced by Connor Brennan, Orla Darling, Lisa Doyle, Courtney Helen Gryle, Tom Headley, Lorraine McAvoy and Alan O'Neill. With many thanks for our jingle to Angus O'Loughlin.